Oh, we worship you, God. We adore you, God. We adore you, God. You are the great I am. You are the great I am, God. Oh, you are almighty, all-powerful. You are glorious and wise, God. Lord, we worship you in this place. We worship you in this place, God. We worship your holy and righteous name, God. There is no God like you. There is no God like you, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Glorious God, glorious God. There is no God like you, Lord. No God like you. Hallelujah, Jesus. Come on and give your God a hand of praise. He's worthy. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, chapter 8. You got it, say so. And the word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 1, it says, Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law, Israel will cry to me, My God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. God, we humble our hearts before your presence today. We thank you for your greatness. We thank you for your love. We thank you because you are gracious and kind to us, God. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning, God. Lord, we acknowledge the wonder of your presence. We acknowledge the greatness of who you are. And Holy Spirit, we just ask you to speak to us, God. We ask you to give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. We ask you to be glorified in us, God, and we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. And someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so for those of you that haven't been with us in the last few weeks, you don't know this, but we've been going through the book of Hosea. And, um, and, 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 and last week I dealt with something different. Obviously, we had everybody in the sanctuary with us, so we didn't go over the book of Hosea. But we're going to close out the book of Hosea today in a message that is entitled Judgment and Restoration. And what we see in the beginning of this is not very encouraging, and I want us to read this together um, as we go through chapters 8 through chapter 10, because it speaks clearly of the judgment of God. It speaks clearly of God's wrath coming against people who are rebellious and disobedient toward him. And it's important that we see that God is a loving God, but at the same time, that God does correct those who rebel against him. Hello. It is important for us we realize that when we look at God being loving, that he is very loving, that he is very gracious, that he is very kind, but that when we rebel against him, that there are consequences for those rebellions, that there are consequences for us dishonoring and disobeying what he commands us to do. And so in chapter 8, and, and, and a few weeks ago, we dealt with the other chapters, like chapters 4 through 6, and when we went through there, we looked at parts of God pro proclaiming his judgment, and what we'll see is a little bit more of that going through this part, portion that we'll deal with today. 
And in Hosea chapter 8, verse, I mean chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, God gives a, a general command, a, a general declaration. He says, set the trumpet to your mouth. In other words, this is what's going to happen. Be my mouthpiece that's going to come forward. Be my prophet and speak unto them and let them know what is going to be happening. He says, he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. And what he's saying is that judgment is going to come, that he is talking about the kingdom of Assyria is going to come against them. And so he's saying that this is going to happen. There is no question about this because they have transgressed my covenant and so he gives general he says they transgressed his covenant and he said and rebelled against my laws and then it goes on to say this it says Israel will cry to me my God we know you and so look at what happens here because this is so important for us Israel is going to raise their voice and they're going to say God don't we know you don't we worship you don't we have covenant with you don't we have relationship with you and, and in our day in our context we would say something like well don't we go to church every Sunday don't we worship together don't we you know pay our tithes don't we do different things don't we seem to act like Christians God, doesn't that mean that we know you because we do some stuff that looks like it should and we do some things that are definitely commanded in the word of God, but that does not mean that we know him. It does not mean that we know him just because we do certain things that we are supposed to do. It doesn't mean that we know him. It says Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. And so he declares this. And so Hosea continues to prophesy of the coming judgment upon Israel for its rebellion against God. And so he begins with this general prophecy, but then he expounds what he's speaking about in seven specific things that Israel has done to deserve judgment. And so for the rest of chapter 8, we'll look at the specifics that God is dealing with. And please, if you're taking notes, you should write these things down. If you have a highlighter or a pen or something like that, you should mark these things. You can write, mark them right there in your Bible. I know some of you are like, you know, I don't like to write in my Bible. I understand that. Amen? I'm the same way. I have a couple of Bibles. I have the one that I write in and the one that I don't. And all I'm saying is that it's important that you look at these things because when I sat down and as I was reading the scriptures and as I was studying these, these, these texts out and I began to see what were the specifics that Israel had done, it made me tremble because I realized that our nation has done all of this. I realize that the nation that we live in, the nation that we call home, those of us that are here, the things that Israel, the things that we're going to talk about, these seven things we have done as a nation. And I don't know about you, but I tremble when I think that we as a nation have followed in the footsteps of Israel. In these areas, because that means that the same sea, because here's the problem. The problem with us is that we want to think, well, we can do the same stuff they did and not experience the same consequences. This is not true, church. That is why it should cause us to tremble. It should cause us to be broken. And so look at what the Bible says. The first thing that they do, say this with me, is that they set up illegitimate rulers. Look at chapter four, I mean chapter eight and verse four. It says, "They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them." Hold on a second. They set up kings but I did not know them. They set up princes, but I did not acknowledge them. And so the first issue is that they put people in position that God wasn't approving of. Are you hearing me? They were putting people in position, and listen, and listen to what I'm saying right now. I am not, so for all y'all that think that I'm saying this, I'm not talking about this last election. We've been doing this for a long time. 
Okay, so you can get off that right quick. Understand something. We don't seek God about the leaders, and then we want to go, see, because we're real Christian and we're real spiritual, we want to go to Romans chapter 13, and we're like, well, all authority is established by God. Understand this. God appoints all authority, but he also does it for a reason. It's not because it's always his best for us, but it is sometimes because he is judging us. It is sometimes because he is showing us, okay, this is what you want, then that is what I'm going to give you. That's what he's saying here. But he's saying what Israel did. The first thing is they set up illegitimate leaders. So what does that mean we should do? Listen, you and I should be on our faces, not just every four years for the presidential election. We should be on our faces at all times praying to God for godly leaders to be in all roles of leadership, all roles of government, that there will be people that fear God, people who reverence God, people who don't just read the Constitution, but they also read their Bibles. People who realize that anything that we have as a nation is not because we are so great. It is because He is so merciful. And when we have those kind of leaders, they will humble themselves before God, and they will cry out to Him and look to Him for counsel, not to pop psychology. Not to the popular things that are going on. See, one thing that I love, Mark Driscoll says this. He says that the, 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 um, the people in government, they're not the ones that set the culture. They are the ones that follow the culture. See, so we can try to blame all of those people in leadership, but guess what, church? We in this nation, we have a right to vote for them. And so we get what we vote for. Amen, somebody. So the first thing they did as they set up illegitimate rulers. The second thing, look at verses, look at, look, look at the rest of that verse 4. It says here, it says, From their silver and gold they, they made idols for themselves, that they might cut off, that they, that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So the first thing they did was they set up illegitimate rulers. Say this with me. The second thing, they set up illegal religion. They went ahead and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to create gods of our own and we're going to worship them. See, in our nation, it's a little bit different because, you know, we have freedom of religion. Amen. That's what they say anyway, but I'm just saying. But here's the thing. We have, we have this freedom. We should be free to worship whoever we want. You are absolutely 100% correct. We should be free to worship whoever we want. Because when our nation was founded, for those of you that don't realize this, and some of y'all will disagree with me on what I'm about to say, and please don't get offended, but know the history and think about this logically. Our nation was not founded as a Christian nation. The reason why it could not be founded as a Christian nation is because the founders of our nation were running away from a Catholic nation. Hello? They were running away from the oppression of Catholicism. They were running away from a government that was declaring who you had to worship. Are you hearing me? They were running away from that. And so when our founding fathers came over here, they didn't establish a Christian nation. What they did do, however, is they established a nation that was built on biblical principles. See, that, that's where the other group got offended. Oh, yes, we're not a Christian nation. But what we want to do is we want to reject our roots and that these people were looking at the Bible. See, because most of them, if not, and I'm not, not all of them, but most of them were at minimum believers in the Scriptures. 
Most of them. And, and, and if you look at the history and how many times our Bible was quoted and the establishing of our nation, what happens is we go ahead and we realize, okay, there is one true God. We cannot make anybody worship him. So everyone's free to do what they want. But here is the issue, church. Now we have seen this. The problem is that now we have this different religion. It's, it's a godless religion, though. It's called, it's, it's called secular humanism. Hello. And that's what we see proclaimed throughout our land. That's what we see proclaimed everywhere. That's where you get all of this stuff where we just need to, you know, be inclusive, that we need to coexist, that we need to be tolerant. But notice they tolerate everyone except us. Note, I mean, just, just keep it real. They tolerate everyone. They're, they'll tolerate this one in their belief. They'll tolerate that one in their belief. But go on ahead and stand up for your beliefs and see how tolerated you are. Y'all, y'all know A&E just, you know, they just reinstated, you know, our friend Phil. Hello. But I'm just saying, he was, listen, this, 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 this is the sad reality of this. Can I, if we can just be real about this for a moment, this is the saddest reality about the whole situation. It wasn't like Phil just got up and just decided, you know what, I am going to just bash a specific thing. That's not what he did. This whole thing happened in the context of a full interview. It was one part of the interview that they decided that's, and who is they? Well, you know who they are, so I won't get into all of that. But they decided that they were going to blow him up because of that. Hello? I, th- I thought we could tolerate. I-, I thought we were tolerant of people's beliefs. And Phil just disagrees with something that, that, that other people agree with. But see, the problem is this, is that we set up illegitimate religion. See, because what should be happening is there should, listen to what I'm going to say, there should be real tolerance of everything. Listen to me. When I say everything, I'm talking about worship. I'm not talking about tolerance of craziness. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, because without, if, if we just tolerate everything, we're out of our minds. What I'm saying is, is that we shouldn't force anyone. We should not force anyone to have to believe a certain way. We shouldn't force anyone to have to shut their mouth because it's going to offend someone. Listen, that is part of life. Hello. I'm just saying, y'all, y'all, y'all too quiet for me. But they set up illegitimate, they, they set up illegitimate religion, illegal religion. God, and, and see, with Israel, it was different. Israel was a theocracy, meaning that God was their God. It was a God-run nation. They were supposed to be run by the Lord. They were supposed to be led by the commandments of God. They were supposed to do that. And so what happens is they decided they were going to create idols. They were going to worship their own things. And so for us today, it's not just secular humanism because with secular humanism, that's the root of it, should I say. It's that it teaches you, listen, man, whatever's good for you is good for you. That doesn't mean it's got to be good for everyone else. It tells you that truth is relative, which we know is not true, because if that was so, my child could go to school and say two plus two equals five, and it's right. Why? Because truth is relative. You hear what I'm saying? Truth is not relative. It's relative when you want it to be. But here's the reality. They set up, and so we're doing the same stuff here. The third thing, look at chapter, chapter 8, verse 7 through 8. It says, they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it, sh- if it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. Now notice what it says here. It says that they, first of all, sow the wind. And so this third thing, say this, they engaged in reckless sowing. 
See, sowing the wind means that they were sowing, they were going after things that, that were empty. They were going after things. They were, they were pursuing things that were, that were not going to sustain their lives. They were pursuing those type of things. They were giving all of their time, all of their effort to false worship. They were giving all of their time and all of their effort to things that were not going to produce life. And instead of producing life, they reap what? Disaster is what the scripture says. Because they were pursuing, well, I'm going to pursue success, and that's going to fulfill me. Or I'm going to pursue popularity, that's going to fulfill me. Or I'm going to pursue whatever it is, and that's going to fulfill me. But God says, no, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And if you start reaping anything, then someone else is going to come, and they're going to take it. But it says here in verse 8, it says, like a vessel, they are among the Gentiles, like a vessel in which is no pleasure. What he is saying is that they were sowing worthlessness, and so they became worthless. Listen, church, this is scary for us. Why? Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said that you are the salt. Did he not say this? He said you are the salt of the earth. But what good is the salt if it loses its saltiness? In other words, when I begin to pursue things that do not bring glory to Jesus, when I begin to pursue things that are secondary rather than primary things, when I begin to pursue things outside of living the gospel the way that I'm supposed to, when I begin to pursue that stuff and my life begins to look more like the world, my life begins to look more like those who don't know Jesus, who don't love Jesus. When my, when my life begins to look like that, you know what I just did? I just lost my saltiness because when I was supposed to be salt, I was too busy trying to become a steak. Are you hearing me? You see, when I, when I take the salt, and I love the analogy, when I take the salt, the salt does not become the steak. The salt changes the flavor of the steak. The salt alters the state of, the, of, of that steak. That is what the salt does. The salt doesn't say, hey man, I'm sick of being salt, I'm going to come be a steak. That's not what it does, because when it does that, it does nothing to the steak. Church, we are supposed to be the salt of the world, meaning we are supposed to influence. And hear me, please, whenever we begin to influence the way that God wants, sometimes it is painful. Because you know what? Sometimes the steak don't want to be salted. Hello? Sometimes the steak wants a different flavor, wants a different seasoning. But God says, you are the salt of the earth. You are supposed to bring change. You are supposed to bring forth the kingdom of God. But listen, church, we can't do that when we are sowing the wind. We can't do that when we're pursuing ungodliness. We can't do those things. The next thing that we see in verse 9 through 10, it says this. It says, For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow, and they, and they shall sorrow a little because the burden of the king of princes. The next thing is this. Say this with me. They established disastrous foreign policies. The first thing they do is that they set up illegitimate rulers. The second thing is they set up illegal religion. The third thing is they engage in reckless sowing. And the fourth thing is that they establish disastrous foreign policies. What does this mean here? What this is saying is that they, instead of them trusting in God, they go up to Assyria. And when they go up to Assyria, what they're doing is they hired lovers. In other words, remember now we're talking about, you know, we have the analogy and the picture of Gomer being a prostitute. Now, think about this for a moment. A prostitute gets paid for what she gives. Hello. Notice what happens here. Now Israel went from getting paid for what they're doing to now paying other people to do to them. 
Are you seeing that? They went and they hired lovers. They went and they hired people. And so what they were doing was they were going over there to the Assyrians and they were trying to seek their refuge. They were trying to seek them to be the ones to protect them and keep them rather than them trusting in God Almighty. See, because here's what happens. When we are going to trust in God Almighty, you and I cannot trust in God Almighty to protect us and to keep us if we're going to live in rebellion against him. Are you hearing me? You can't expect God to liberate you and to set you free and to do all of these things if you are not seeking him by his standards. And we'll get to that in a moment. But they were doing this. They were doing something that was incorrect. They were establishing relationship with foreigners that they shouldn't have. They were establishing allegiances with foreigners that they shouldn't have. They should have recognized that those people were ungodly. They should have recognized that their motives were ungodly. They should have recognized that they were not what God called them to be in covenant with. The fifth thing, say this with me, they set up multiple altars. Look at verses 11 through 12. It says, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. Now look at this. He says, because he made many altars for sin, what does he do? He establishes, he, he, he sets up all of these different altars. Why does this matter and what does this even mean? Well, when you look back at the book of Deuteronomy, you find that God talked about the children of Israel worshiping in one place. And he was saying, look, he said, you're not going to do like the heathens do. You're not going to go ahead and worship wherever you want. You're not going to worship however you want. You're not going to do things the way that you want to do it. But you are going to worship me by my standards. Hello. You are going to worship me my way, not your way. You are going to seek me the way that I say you should seek me, not the way that you will to seek me. And so the mindset that they had here was, you know what? We're going to just set up all kinds of altars, and we're going to sacrifice all over the place, and somehow that's pleasing to God. That isn't pleasing to God. Here's the problem with us today, and this is the saddest reality. Y'all drove here today, and I promise you, depending on how far you drove, you at least drove by five churches before you got to this one. And if you're looking close enough, if you drove down the right streets or, you know, you drove by some other places that are called places of worship that have nothing to do with Jesus. And I don't care if it says Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. That has nothing to do with the Jesus we serve. Listen to me. We have all kinds of places. And so this is what happens. We, and, and, then, and then, see, here's, here's the thing. In a freedom of religion, it's all good because people are going to worship how they want to worship. But you know what our greatest detriment is as a church? It's that we decided that we want to be prideful, and so we want to divide over things we shouldn't be dividing over. But even more than that is that we decide that we don't want to hear real preaching of the truth of God's word, so we rather go to places that our ears are tickled. Hello? And what we do is we encourage false teaching. We encourage false doctrine. We encourage ungodly lifestyle under the covering. Oh, that's a church. That's not a church. That is not what the church is supposed to look like. But when you, have, you just worship however you want to worship, you do things however you want to do them, then what happens is you end up in this scenario. So you worship God how you want to worship him. You don't worship him according to the scriptures. That's why I tell everyone, listen, whether they come to Faith Dome or not, it is important that when you get born again and Jesus comes into your life, that you find a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. 
You don't just find a church that, listen, you can find a bunch of churches that have great songs of worship that, that make you feel good, make you jump, make you clap. You can find amazing stuff like that. You can find people that preach better than me. They talk better. They have better. They definitely don't make up words like I do. I'm just saying, you can find people that, that you know, they're not going to yell as much as I do either, and they're going to motivate you and make you feel great about yourself. But is that what God, I mean, I, I want you to feel good about what God has done in your life, but I don't want you to feel okay living in the sin that you want to live in. I, I don't want you to feel okay like, you know, I'm all right, I'm, I'm living like a heathen, but I'm good. No, you're not. That's not, that's not cool. You know, I, I'm calling myself a Christian, but I'm giving a bad name to God everywhere that I go because I don't live for him. See, I, I don't want you to feel comfortable like that because I know God is not comfortable with that because at the end of the day, when I, when I stand before God, if there's one thing that I want to make sure that I hear is well done, good and faithful servant. I want to make sure that, 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 that I know that I might have offended some people and I probably do that weekly. But here's the thing. I want to make sure that I do it for the glory of Jesus. I'm not doing it because I want to hurt your feelings. I, want, I do it because I want to help you with real help. See, but here's the thing, and I, don't, and I don't want to boast on me. What I'm saying is there are plenty of other preachers that are preaching the truth of the gospel. There are plenty of other preachers, but we need to make sure that those are the ones that we are watching. Those are the ones that we're listening to, that those are the ones that we're in covenant with, that we're not listening to every Tom, Dick, and Harry that gets up and opens their Bible and says they're preaching something. Half of these dudes don't even preach the Bible. They'll give you, they, they, listen, my goodness. I'm going to say this because, you know what, this, this just got me mad the other day. The other day, Oprah Winfrey, I know, I know some of y'all love Oprah, y'all shouldn't, but listen, you should love her and pray for her salvation, but don't be believing her beliefs, hello. The other day, Oprah Winfrey, you know where she went to church? She went to Lakewood Church. You know, she, you know she, she, that's Joel Osteen's church, by the way. And she went to church, and you, if you watch the show, you watch the program, you know, the, the reason why I want to share this with you is because if you were watching the program, you would think Oprah, who has denied Jesus as being the only way, who has denied the gospel as being the only truth, you would think watching her, because she's standing there, mind you, she was raised in church. You know what that means? That means she knows all them church songs. Hello. And when she was in that service, she was standing there, and she was singing, and they made sure they got her on video real good for you. Hello. And she looked like she was about to cry at some moments. I was like, man, if I didn't know any better, I would think that she loved Jesus. After the, after the service, you know, she goes and she does an interview with Joel Osteen and she has this conversation with him. And listen, I, I, I typically do not announce stuff. I don't, I don't like to talk about but I need you all to understand something. I sat down and listened to Joel Osteen's 27-minute message. I wasted 27 minutes of my life. I'm just letting you know. Because I sat there and listened because I wanted to hear. And listen, I know some of y'all are like, but he makes me smile. That's wonderful. If you need to smile, watch him. But don't, don't, don't like listen to him like you're getting your doctrine for life. Because that is not the right thing. And so this is, this is why it makes me so mad. It's because when I listen to his message, I listen to his preaching, he quotes scripture. Listen to me now. He, he preached for like 20, I think like 24 minutes and never quoted one Bible verse. And then when he does quote a Bible verse, he quotes it so out of context, it is ridiculous. 
And people are believing like, oh, yes, that's the place that I want to be. No, that is not the place you want to be. That is not the person you want to listen to. That is not a person that is going to bring you to the feet of Jesus. That is a person that is going to make you feel good about yourself and make you think, I got to think positive thoughts and bring positive things. And that's what it was all about. You know what the title of the message was? The title of the message was The I Am. Now, you would think, right, like when you think of I am, don't you think of like Exodus and, you know, when God met Moses and Moses was like, okay, you know, who, who do I say sent me? Say, I am that I am sent me, right? You want to know what the message was about? It was about the I am's that come out of your mouth. So if you say I am fat, guess what's chasing after you? Calories. And I am quoting him verbatim. If I say I'm ugly, what's chasing me? I don't know. Ugly's chasing me. I have no idea. But if I say, but... Here's the problem. It is not about all the I. It's not about what I say. It is about where is my faith? My faith is in who? Is it in the great I am? It is, is it in Jesus? It is, is it in his finished work? Or is it in my own positive way of being? Listen, we need to be careful with what we listen to. Because Israel was judged because of their setting up a false religions church. And if there's one thing that I want us to be sure of is that we don't fall prey to the deceptions that are out there. Look at verse 13. It says, for their sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat, but the Lord does not accept them, nor will he remember their iniquity. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Look at that again. For, they, for the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. In other words, they were doing things that seemed right, but the Lord does not accept them. No, now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. And so when he's saying return to Egypt, he's saying they were going to return to their bondage. They're going to return to their place of bondage. Why? Because they're sacrificing things to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. You have to remember when they were sacrificing in those times, what they were doing was they were doing penance. They were sacrificing in order to earn God's forgiveness. That system was different than ours. And so what they were doing was they, were, they gave worthless offerings is what they were doing. And so they were giving him offerings that meant nothing because he wasn't looking for their offering. He was looking for their heart that was absent they were giving him worthless offerings listen this is what we have to understand we can do a whole bunch of religious stuff that doesn't make us right we can do a whole bunch of listen you can give your 10 percent, 20 percent, 50 percent. i don't know how much you give you can give all that listen you can go ahead and 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 and, and love your neighbor and you can do all kind of good stuff for them you can make sure you come to church you make sure you go to connect you can make sure you don't miss any of the fellowships that we have we can do all that stuff and that doesn't make you right it doesn't mean we stop doing those things it's that we make sure that our offerings that our sacrifices are coming from the depth of our hearts they're coming from the depth of our hearts. And not just that, you know, because here's, here's another mistake that we make, is that we think, well, man, I really feel it right here. So that must mean that it's coming from the depth of my heart. Tears are streaming down my face. My heart is being torn. So that means that it's coming from the depth of my heart. Can I tell you how you measure where it's coming from? Don't measure the moment. Measure the moments after the moment. Measure the moments after that. Uh, if it came from your heart, then your lifestyle changes. If it came from your heart, then the way you live changes, not just for a moment, 
but is a continual transformation. And that only happens when we are continually searching ourselves. The last thing in verse 14 that he says here, the seventh thing is this. And this is the heart of all of the other ones. For Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities. But I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his palaces. The first verse is the problem. They neglected their maker. They forgot their maker. They abandoned their maker. You see, the reason why they set up illegitimate rulers is because they forgot their maker. The reason why they set up illegal religion is because they forgot their maker. The reason why they engaged in reckless sowing is because they forgot their maker. The reason why they established disastrous foreign policies is because they forgot their maker. The reason why they set up multiple altars is because they forgot their maker. And the reason why they gave worthless offerings is because they forgot their maker. They forgot him. They forgot that it's not about me, that it's about him. They forgot that it's not about us, it's not about our feelings, it's not about our whatever. It is about him. It is about his glory. It is about things being done his way. They forgot that. And so he continues to communicate this. And see, here's the thing. The judgments prophesied against Israel were earned and they were well-deserved, as is the case with many people and nations who have experienced God's grace and have rejected his word and rebelled against his ways. That is what they were experiencing. It was because of what they had done. And the weight of God's judgment, it should produce a real and a true fear of God in our hearts that will cause us to examine ourselves in the light of the counsel of his scripture. See, when I look at these things, when I look at these scriptures, what I tell you is this. When I sit down and I'm reading through Hosea and I'm there studying and preparing, I'm not just preparing to preach, I'm preparing to live. Because as I look at these scriptures, they make me tremble. They make me study myself. They make me internalize. They make me look at my heart. They make me look at my motives. They make me look at my actions. They make me look and check myself because I need to make sure that I'm not disqualified. I need to make sure that I have not run in vain. That's stuff that Paul said. He said, I need to make sure that I have not run in vain, but that I'm running this race to the end of what? That I will stand before him and be received into his kingdom. See, when we look at these scriptures, it should cause something inside of us. And so I think that I've painted a pretty depressing picture, don't you think? They sacrifice. He don't want to hear it. They they build cities. He's going to burn them down. That's pretty depressing, right? And so what happens is the backdrop for this gospel that we have is so dark. See, in our days, when we look at situations that we're facing, we look at things that are going on, we look at things that are happening. Listen, it is is dark times. Hello? We're living in days when people don't want to hear the truth of God's word. We're living in days where there is a lot of hopelessness that is going on. If we continued reading chapter 9 and chapter 10, you would see how much darker and how much more desperate it becomes. But here is what I want you to understand, is that the darkness of the backdrop only makes the brilliance of the gospel greater. You see, the reason why we need to understand our sinfulness is because we will never appreciate God's love until we understand how sinful we are. 
The reason why we need to be reminded of how desperate we are apart from God is because if we don't come to that realization, we will never appreciate what God has done for us. See, so when you turn your Bible over and you look at chapter 11, you'll notice something. After all of the declarations of judgment that have come to them, see, because I said the message was judgment and restoration. And so I want us to look at what the scriptures say continuing on because God declares his judgment. And a lot of times we think, as Minister Juan was praying earlier, he was like, God, help us, you know, to know how to discipline. Help us to know how to love. Help us to know. And the one thing that we need to understand, parents especially, is that when you are disciplining, you are not being unloving. Hello? Are you hearing me? When you are disciplining your children, you are showing them how much you love them. On the contrary, when you don't discipline them, you are showing them how much you hate them. You are showing them that you do not care. When you do not tell your child no when they need to hear no, you are showing them you don't really care about them. When you don't spank your child, and listen, I know I always joke around, I say we got to beat the hell out of our kids, but I want you to understand something. I don't, I don't beat my daughter. I will not beat my son in the way that, you know, some people may receive that. But what I do know is that there has to be discipline. There, need, there are some times that a child needs to be spanked, and when you don't spank them, you show them, I don't love you. Oh, said, I love them so much. No, you don't love them enough. You don't love them enough. You don't love them enough to go and cry in your room because you had to spank them. You don't love them enough to go cry in your room because you had to say no. You don't love them enough because you're not looking to their future. And I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm not talking about 20 years from now. I'm talking about their future when they cross the line of this world into the next and they have to stand before their creator. And you are a horrible example of what God is. God is a loving God who corrects us when we need it. There are consequences to our sin, and the way that our children get to understand that is the way that we parent them. Amen. In chapter 11 there, the light comes on, and this is the brilliance of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them. So they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. Now notice what happens. He starts off saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him. So what is he? He's, he's reminding of when they were in their infancy, when they were first being called. When he, he's saying, I love them when they were a child. He says, I love them in that time. And he said, and, and I called them out of Egypt. And this is a picture as well. The way that God called Israel out of Egypt for, for, for liberty. When you look forward to the book of Matthew, you see that the Bible uses this, this scripture as a prophecy to confirm God calling his son, Jesus, out of Egypt as well. But look what happens. God is declaring his love for them, right? And it would seem that God's love would cause them to turn or something, right? But look what it says. It says, as they called them, in other words, as God called them to himself, so they went from them. Instead of turning to God, they went away from God. They sacrificed to the Baals. Instead of sacrificing to God, they sacrificed to their idols and burned incense to carved images. He goes on to say, I taught Ephraim to walk, talk, taking them by their arm, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. 
So he gives this picture. He's saying, I love them. They turn away from me. I love them. They worship false gods. They didn't even know that I was the one that was teaching them to walk. They didn't know that I was the one that was healing them. They didn't recognize me as any of that. It's what continually happens with us. God is so good. He is so gracious. He is so merciful. For some reason, we think that we're so cute, and that's the reason why we don't experience stuff. For some reason, we think we're so slick or we're so smart or we're so wise, and that's the reason. The only reason why we don't experience stuff is because of God's mercy. If you're slick, it's because he gave you wisdom. Hello? I'm just saying. It's because he gave you the ability. It's not because you just got it all on your own. He goes on to say in verse 5, he says, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king, because they refuse to repent, and the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them. Because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to me the Most High, none at, exalt, at all exalt him. That's amazing. So he's saying that. I love them. I care for them. And they are bent. Their hearts are bound to turning away from me. Listen, he said his people. He's talking about Israel. But church, know this. This is inside of you just as well. That you are, when we sang this song, I told y'all in, 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 the, in, in the Thanksgiving service, and it, and, and it was one of those old hymns, I guess, and it talked about my heart is prone to wander. I hated that song, but then when I'm reading this, I'm like, man, they're just singing the scriptures. My heart is prone to wander. There's something inside of me that will cause me to want to turn from God when I should be turning to him. He says, they call, they, they, though they call to the Most High. In other words, they call, they, you're God. But look what he says. He says, none at all exalt him. That's crazy. None of them exalt him. But look at this. This verse 8 kills me. This is such an amazing picture of God's heart. Look what he says. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is, stir, is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Say this with me. In the midst of judgment, God's mercy is waiting to be revealed. See, in the midst of all of this judgment, in the midst of all of this judgment, God, see, notice this. The prophet doesn't bring to God's remembrance his love for Israel. No. God brings to the prophet's remembrance his love for Israel. 
Notice, please, that God is not desirous to show Israel mercy because of their perfection. On the contrary, they are so imperfect, it is crazy to me that he even desires to show any kind of mercy. Or because they somehow are deserving. They've done nothing to deserve his mercy. But God is merciful because he is infinite in his love and he is relentless in his pursuit of us. It's just him. It's just who he is. And in the midst of all of the judgment, in the midst of all of the idolatry, in the midst of all of these things that they should be destroyed for, God reminds them, I love you. He reminds them, I love you. I care for you. I've called you. You've rebelled against me. You've cursed me with your life. You've dishonored me with your behavior. You've disrespected me in the way that you've been. You have done everything that that one could do to make my anger be aroused, and yet I will not respond to you in the fierceness. Oh, you're going to experience some judgment, yes. You're going to experience some consequences, yes. But you won't experience as much as you should. But what has to happen? We have to turn. We have to turn and repent of our sin. See, one of the greatest encouragements that we have as believers is that God's mercy does not rest on our merit, but it rests on his character. God's mercy doesn't rest on who I am. God's mercy doesn't rest on because, well, I was kind of good, so that's why he was merciful. No, I was horrible. I didn't deserve any mercy. I didn't deserve any grace. And he was merciful because he is merciful, period. That is it. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, you don't have to turn there. You can write that scripture down. Understand why God disciplines us. It is with an end in mind, and that is to produce in us the fruit of righteousness. He says that no discipline seems pleasant at the present time. He says, but at the end, it produces what? The fruit of righteousness. That's what God wants to produce in us. It should be our greatest desire that we respond to God's faithfulness with faithfulness rather than indifference and faithlessness. What you see in Israel here is that God demonstrates his faithfulness, and what do they show? Unfaithfulness. They show that they are not faithful. They show faithlessness. The same thing for us, church. We should have the same heart. We should have the same mindset that we do not want to be faithless, that we don't want to be indifferent towards God's love. So how do we respond? The second thing, say this after me. Say, our response to God's merciful call to repentance should be resilient devotion. Look at chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. In the beginning of chapter 12, he rebukes them for being a certain way. But in chapter chapter 12, verses 3, it says, he took his brother by the heel in the womb. He's speaking of, of Jacob. And he said, and in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. And so notice what he says. He uses Jacob as a positive example. He's saying, look, this is what Jacob did. Before Jacob was even out of the womb, you know what he was doing? He was grabbing his brother's heel. He was fighting for his birthright. That's what he was doing from the womb. 
There was something that God had put inside of him. And he continued to press to the point that when he was a grown man and he had an encounter with a stranger, he didn't know who it was, he began to wrestle and he understood who this person was. He understood that this person was greater than him. And so he wrestles with him to the point that the Bible says that he prevails. And literally, it's giving us a picture of how we should pursue our God. It's giving us a picture. It's saying, look, we should be like that. We should recognize the God who calls us to repentance, and we should pursue him relentlessly as well. We should pursue him with all of our heart. And and when we get in prayer and when we get with him, we should hold on to him until he blesses us. This is what Jacob does. Jacob Jacob isn't some, some wimpy guy. Jacob is like a man's man. Hello. And he wrestles with God, not knowing it, but he is wrestling with him. Until what? Until God blesses his life. And he continues because he wants to see God's favor. But God uses him as a positive example. And he shows us the type of devotion that we should have towards the Lord. Not just in prayer, but in the lifestyle that we live. Hello. It's not just about a one-time thing, church. It's about having a devotion to him in all of our life. That all of our life is pursuing him. Our devotion to God begins and continues in a walk of sincere repentance of our sin and acceptance of his love and kindness. Look at chapter 14, and we're getting ready to close here. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 8, because this is how we should be responding to God. He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. In other words, turn from your sin. Turn to me. Take words with you. And return to the Lord. In other words, take my word. Say to him, look what he says. This is how you repent. Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips, meaning that the words that come out of our lips, it's not just going to be things that we offer on an altar. It's going to be the devotions from our heart. He says, Assyria shall not save us. In other words, my hope is not in anyone else for salvation. I don't have any other functional savior. I'm not turning to someone else to defend me. I'm not turning to someone else to help me. I'm turning to you and to you alone for help. We will not ride on horses. Again, that's looking at military. He's saying we're not dependent on those things. Nor will we say anymore to the work of our hands, you are our gods. For in your father, for, for in your, in you, the fatherless finds mercy. You know what he says? He says, look, he says, you recognize your sin. He says, you, you, you do not depend on anyone else for deliverance. You depend on me for deliverance. And he says, and then you deal with your idolatry. <laughs> See, this is the thing that we don't want to do. We don't want to deal with the idols in our life. We don't want to deal with those things that we are more devoted to. Whatever they may be, they can be anything. I won't go down the list, you can, but, but I can tell you just a few things. You can idolize your car. You can love work more than you love God. You can love money more than you can love God. You can love your children more than you love God. You can love your spouse more than you love God. You can love your parents more than you love God. That's why Jesus says if you are going to follow me, that you cannot love anyone more than me. See, none of these things are bad things. Loving your children, that is a good thing. Amen? Amen. Being a person who likes to work, that is a good thing. Amen? Amen. Those are good things. None of these things are bad things. But when those things are before God, they become idols. We don't want to deal with the idols. 
We don't want to deal with those things that we live just for someone's smile or we live for some pat on the back or we live for some promotion or we live whatever it is that we're living for. If we are living for something, if something else makes you wake up, if something else keeps you up at night other than the gospel, you have an idol you need to deal with. But see, that's the way that we repent, church is that we turn from our sin. And it's not just one time, because here's the thing, you can deal with that idol today, and for some of us, you will have to repent daily for those idols. Because you will struggle daily. If, if, if you have an idol that is your children, listen, I'm going to tell you, what, I repent daily. I love my kids. I love them with all of my heart, and I have to check myself continually that I don't love them more than I love God. I'm just letting you know, that that's me. I, I have to struggle with that and make sure that I don't care more about them than I care about God. It's not something that I'm going to just, oh, well, I repented once and it's over. It's a continual thing that I will continually have to repent of. And God's response to our repentance is this in verse 4. He says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and, and, and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. And look what he says. He says, I will heal their backsliding immediately. I will love them freely immediately. Here's the thing. When we repent of sin, see, some of us are waiting to feel good about ourselves. You, you don't need to wait to feel good about yourself. You need to feel good about the truth of Scripture. The moment that I truly repent of sin, God immediately, immediately, he doesn't wait. He immediately restores me back to that place of love that I was always at. Hello. He's not waiting for me to feel better about myself. That's not it. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. And so what he's saying is this dew is what actually protects from the, the, the winds and, the, and, 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 and the, the, the forces around there, that dew protects them from being destroyed. So that dew is there. So that way when the heat and the wind and all of that stuff comes against the vegetation, it doesn't die. The dew's not there. The stuff dies. But when the dew is there, it protects it. So he's saying, I'm going to be like that. So immediately, I'm going to be that way. And then he says, and he shall be like the lily. In other words, he's going to start to be fruitful and lengthen his roots in Lebanon, and, and like, like Lebanon. So he's going to bear fruit. He's going to, I mean, he's going, to, he's going to grow roots, and his branches shall spread. When he's talking about branches, Jesus said what? He said that my father is the vine dresser, I am the vine, and you are the branches, right? And so branches are symbolizing people here. And so he's talking about them being fruitful again. His beauty shall be like an olive tree, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So not only will they be fruitful, but those who are connected to them will be fruitful as well. See God's restoration of them, and he brings them to a place where, you know what? You were worthless at one point, but now you're no longer worthless. You were worthless because you were walking in your sin, but because you responded to me in repentance and faith, now I will make you fruitful, and I will make you the blessing that you were called to be. See, we say it all the time, I've been blessed to be a blessing. That's the truth of the scriptures. We have all been blessed to be a blessing. In verse 8, it says, Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? In other words, I don't want to walk, walk or worship with these idols. 
I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. My fruit is found in me. And in closing, here's my question for you. How do you respond to God's call to holy living? How do you respond to it? Because all Hosea did and all I did in here is called you to holy living, to living a holy life. What God continues to do is calls us to live a holy life. How do you respond to that? Do you respond and say, yes, I need to respond? Or do you respond like, okay, what's the next series? Where are we going next after this? I was talking to some people, and I was, t- and I was telling them, some parents, and I said, it is so important that you consider what you hear in the preachings on Sunday. Because if your children know what you're hearing, and they don't see you responding in faith, then you are being a hypocrite. Are you hearing me? So when you sit down, my question is this, and when I, when I tell you, how do you respond to this, my question is, how many messages have you heard in this last year? I'm just talking about on Sunday. I'm not talking about your personal devotion. I'm not talking about your personal time. I'm not talking about the extra stuff that you listen to throughout your week. I'm not talking about all of that. I'm talking about just on Sundays alone. Just on Sundays alone. Listen, if there's 52 Sundays, and let's say you missed 10. I hope you didn't, but let's say you did. Right? So that means you heard like 42 messages. Does your life reflect that you've heard 42 messages? Does your life reflect that you have heard the gospel preached to you over 40 times? Does your life reflect that you have been called to live holy? And if it does not, then here's what the scriptures say. Look, at, well, look, look what he says in verse 9. He says, who is wise? So you're a wise person. That's what we want to be. Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? That's what we should be. Let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So the question is this, are you walking in the truth of Scripture, or are you stumbling to get away from the truth of Scripture? Are you walking according to the counsels of God's Word, or are you living how you want to live? Say, man, I don't need to live like that. I don't need to make those changes. If you're the person that says, I'm unwise, I'm a transgressor, you know what God says? God calls you to repent today. God calls you to lay your idols down today. God calls you to lay down your mindsets today. God calls you to turn from those things today. If you're a person that is wise and you're walking out, and listen, when I say that you've heard 40-something messages and, you know, does your life look like it, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. There are going to be messages that you need to hear over and over again for you to be able to get them, and you still won't get them. That's the bottom line. But here is the point. I mean, if you look at your Bible, God is repeating himself over and over and over again. Why does he do that? Because we are hard-headed. Hello? It's because we'll learn a truth today, we'll cry about it today, and then in a month, a year, sometime, we'll begin to walk away from that truth that God spoke to us about. It happens to us, and we have to be reminded of that truth constantly. Constantly. So I ask you to stand to your feet and bow your heads. Hmm.